Hi, this is Day for Night with Caridad Spitch, a series that looks at the intersection between theater and poetry in the edgelands, in the wilderness. As I said in the prior episode, um, I'm just doing an experiment here of posting some lectures that I've done at university um, for students <laughs> uh, on specific types or shall we say forms of drama um, and I just wanted to kind of uh, also share them with the world. Um, they're meant to be informative. Uh, they're not the be all and end all by any means on any of these topics uh, but it's hopefully a way to have a conversation, a dialogue or just think through uh, what specifically uh, in this case for today's uh, episode is on post-traumatic theater. And uh, the prior episode was on alternative forms. So, you know, I'm, I'm approaching this area that is incredibly well-documented uh, addressing what is considered alternative, I suppose, in theater and why um, against what is conventional. And, you know, what I will say about all of this is that uh, Aristotle really did our heads in <laughs> in the world of theater, um, uh, especially how Aristotle was translated, uh, how the poetics, I should say, was translated, not just Aristotle um, and all his work, but specifically the poetics and, and how the poetics has kind of, for whatever reason, well, multiple reasons, uh, has been seen as a kind of rule book, as it were, when it when it really is a, th a theory, and and it's actually a kind of examination, not a kind of, but an examination of looking at tragedy specifically. Uh, Aristotle was thinking through the tragedy, and wanted to kind of, um, you know, extrapolate what he was viewing. Um, and give it names, give it a name. Uh, and he identified key things that a lot of people in theater have taken as gospel uh, to some degree. The notion of conflict, uh, plot, character, spectacle, music, uh, the elements of drama, musicality, uh, theme, idea, so forth. Um, all of which are part of drama. Uh, and I think that because the way the poetics has been interpreted over the centuries and then diluted and reshaped into what some people call the Hollywood school, you know, sort of the three act structure uh, of screenplays uh, that were really um, taken from three act structure of plays. Uh, a lot of playwrights went to Hollywood, the early days of talking pictures, uh, and, you know, kind of regurgitated uh, some of these templates. So I think that the stranglehold has been very strong. And as a friend of mine says, it's the tyranny of dramaturgy, right? There's been a tyrannical dramaturgy imposed on storytelling, you know, and... So I think that what's happened, of course, uh, since, you know, those early days 
of the reinterpretations of the poetics is that you see artists kind of rebelling against that or trying to parse through that or react. So there's kind of what I call reactions against. Uh, and I, I long for the days when, uh, maybe we'll get there one day if theater is still alive, <laughs> um, that we won't be reacting against, but actually just making things. And the conversation doesn't have to be about what is conventional, what is not, and so forth. You just make things and they're there and that's fine. Um, but I think particularly in the academy to some degree, and even in the field, there are still these, these tenets that kind of uh, get attached to playwriting specifically and, and to notions of what is a good play and what is a bad play. Uh, what makes a good play, for example, from a critical standpoint. Uh, and sometimes there are fallacies around this that interfere with actually viewing the play that you're seeing and actually experiencing it and understanding that the play is happening in the air and it's, it's not really a static literary thing. So in any case, um, I wanted to walk down the lane of post-dramatic. Uh, so after the uh, brief musical interlude, you'll, if you're still here, <laughs> you'll hear my uh, a lecture that I've given at university about post-dramatic theater and its history and form. Sort of very condensed, very, uh, not at all, as I said, comprehensive, but a way to begin a dialogue and open up a dialogue. So there you are. Today's episode is on post-dramatic theater. Uh, I'll return to the land of poetry and stories and monologues and scenes in future episodes. Uh, but this is just a little experiment uh, in the, on this platform. So as always, this is about you and I in this theater. You're there in the dark. And I here wondering who you are. Thanks for listening for today for night. Hi, this is a lecture on post-dramatic theater. So post-dramatic theater uh, is a term that was coined by Hans Thies Lehmann, T-I-T-H-I-E-S dash L-E-H-M-A-N-N. Hans is the first name, H-A-N-S, German uh, theater critic and scholar. Uh, and he wrote a whole book about it. Um, and and I think when he coined the term, I think the term took off. So so how did this term come to be? Uh, basically, it sort of starts in the 90s, 1990s. Uh, Hans Lees Lehmann is, is seeing a lot of theater that doesn't look like other plays he's seen before. Uh, there seems to be a movement, in other words, uh, emerging Maybe coming from, this is my speculation, but uh, maybe coming from the dance theater world, certainly the work of Pina Bausch, for sure, uh, the work of Phoebe Miller, uh, the music, music and theater and opera work of Meredith Monk. Uh, so there are, there are some antecedents 
for the post-traumatic. But specifically in play, uh, among playwrights and theater makers, um, there started to be uh, kinds of plays being written and staged and devised in the early 90s that didn't didn't follow quite the rules, quite the rules of what plays are. So they didn't, they usually didn't have characters um, or location or time periods or, you know, they, they perhaps didn't have a plot in the most radical sense of this. Um, and they concentrated fully on the interaction between performer and audience. And that, the, that's the central dynamic of a lot of the post-traumatic work, although not exclusively. I would say that there are arguments against this. Um, but the idea behind the post-traumatic that Hans Thies Lehmann was starting to try to understand, you know, why there was sort of these groups of writers from many different countries. So specifically in Germany, I mean, he's based in Germany. So there was a kind of movement in German theater, which is still alive, very much alive today. That some people call like, German dramaturgy um, of a of contemporary German dramaturgy, um, although it's not exclusive to Germany. Uh, but there was kind of a movement of work. You look at Yelenik's work. So if if you know Yelenik, J E L I N E K, uh, who writes uh, planes of text uh, that may or may not be performed. Uh, that she offers to her directors to choose uh, what elements of the text will be done. Um, the and this is part of like a German tradition, which has to do with theater tradition, which has to do with that the text is separate from the production. So in German theater, the the the, the play text is published and is treated like literature. literature. And but the production is thought is thought of as a separate thing. So so I think this is very different from from certainly from the U.S. and U.K. Uh, the trans the transatlantic sort of understanding of this, but it's also true in, in other countries. So um, Yelenik, I mean, I mention her because she's one of the foremost proponents of post-traumatic theater. Um, and, you know, tells, barely interacts with her production. So <laughs> she's barely in rehearsal. Um, she really just sort of writes. I think she's incredibly reclusive. Um, and she just offers reams of text. So usually uh, thematically centered. Um, like she has a piece about Jacqueline Onassis. She has a piece about Barbie. She has a piece about Donald Trump. Um, usually a highly, very heavily political, um, uh, stream of consciousness and to some extent didactic, although not always. She's most famous, I suppose, in a more conventional way, um, through the movie The Piano Teacher, which was filmed by Michael Hanukkah, uh, because Yel that's based on one of Yelenik's stories. 
So she knows how to write a story. <laughs> um, but when she does theater, she works in a very different way. So um, Jelinek is writing. Falk Richter, who's another German dramatist, is writing, doing some similar things. He writes and directs. He devises his work. Uh, the work tends to be exploded, atomized, fragmented, fractured. Um, in the U.S., uh, post-traumatic theater didn't really take off. So I guess to some extent one could think of Chuck Mee's work as living in that realm a little bit, uh, especially the work that he did with a City Company, with Ann Bogart, Bob Rauschenberg, America, uh, True Love. Uh, but to some extent, because I think Chuck Mee is still interested in narrative uh, and in character to some extent. Uh, and the post-traumatic just, for the most part, tends to dispel those notions, kind of breaks them apart. Influenced very early by a book, and I'm not sure that Hans T. Lehman would say this, but I'm saying this, <laughs> um, by a book called The Death of Character by Eleanor Fuchs. Uh, and I'll mention that a little bit later, but I'm just going to put it in the room now, The Death of Character, which is an incredibly influential book, which was at that time describing work that was coming out of the downtown New York dance theater and downtown theater scene of the late 80s. I'll get my dates right in a second. Um, but work that was that was dis, dis, this sort of destroying this idea or disrupting the idea or breaking the idea of character. Um, and Eleanor Fuchs's book, The Death of Character, is a play on the death of the author, right? So, so if you if you've studied your your structuralism uh, philosophically. And dramaturgically, um, and you've looked at postmodernism. There's a whole movement about the death of the author, right? So, the death of the author, meaning that a text lives on its own, uh, independent of the author. The there's reading a play through an autobiographical lens from an author's perspective makes no sense. Um, Looking for an author's intention is not the way to read it. You're reading text as text, only in relationship to itself and maybe the world. Um, and that was a radical break in the world of arts and letters. Um, and so what I'm saying is that there are kind of like modes, there are things that are happening in other realms that are starting to affect what became to be known as post-traumatic theater. So I'm just kind of getting a little bit of foreground before I dive into this. So. Uh, a way of describing post-traumatic theater is art plays with little to no drama, little to no overt, concrete uh, semblance of what might be understood as the dramatic. Um, there's a playwright from Norway. So this sort of this is sort of a a little map here. So there's post-traumatic theater in Germany. Jelinek is one of the foremost uh, proponents of it, but there's many other 
Falk Richter, many others who are sort of working in this mode. In Norway, there was John Fosse, so, and that's spelled John, like J-O-N, Fosse, like, like Bob Fosse, but it's uh, said Fosse, uh, and it's F-O-S-S-E. Um, in Canada, it's Michel Tremblay, T-R-E-M-B-L-A-Y, and then a whole kind of generation of writers that are following from Tremblay. In the UK, it starts around the, the 90s, and you start to get Martin Crimp, Kane, uh, to some extent, Mark Ravenhill, a little bit later in his career. Um, you'll start to look at the later plays of Churchill that actually fall into, Carol Churchill fall into this tradition. But at the time when post-dramatic was taking off, she was actually not writing in this mode. So it's kind of interesting to see that she sort of has gone in that direction in her later work. So I'm just mentioning some people. So Jan Fasse in Norway um, wrote any number of plays. I mean, incredibly prolific writer. Um, he has since stopped doing theater, by the way. So this is very sad, but um, he was incredibly successful, the most successful writer since Ibsen to come out of Norway. One of the most influential um, around the world, except for the US, um, but really his plays done all over, uh, translated into multiple languages, and really done all over. Um, and Jan Fasse's work does have character. So this was interesting about Fasse because although a lot of people, when they think about post-dramatic theater, they think no character and, and death of character and all that. For Fasse, he does have characters, but, but he, he kind of, he's working in a, a minimalist way um, and he's kind of trying to eliminate the drama. So anything that feels like drama <laughs> uh, in any conventional sense, he tries to kind of subvert, um, uh, placate, uh, disrupt, uh, hold back. I mean, he has many different strategies. If you read John Fosse's work, he has many different strategies around how he, he throws you into his plays that are usually about small towns, people trying to connect with each other, barely connecting, living their lives. They're, they're spare, stark, quiet, sometimes violent, but quiet plays. They're like poems um, in their effect. They're distilled. The language in Jan Fosse's work is incredibly simple and almost, almost banal, you know, almost like, like, is this, what, what is happening? <laughs> People are saying niceties to one another. I mean, it's like, his plays are mysterious, how he develops the atomic charge underneath his writing, where there's no drama, but there's drama. Right. So Fosse is one end 
of the post-dramatic. But Fosse influences a whole range of writers uh, across Europe, in Latin America, Canada, um, in Asia to some degree, though not as much, but his work was done uh, in, in South and East Asia as well. Um, like I said, except for the U.S., <laughs> uh, not so much. So, but then you sort of move into writers that are treated in a different way. So I'm gonna I'm gonna walk through this a little bit, um, and just reiterate some points, which is that post-dramatic theater, coined by the German scholar Hans Lees Lehmann in his book by the same name. And what he was, what was he doing? He was sort of summarizing tendencies and traits that seemed prevalent in the avant-garde since before the 90s. So the book is sort of from the 90s, but he's looking at things that are happening earlier than that, things that are happening in the 1960s um, around staging, around devising, around uh, playwriting and dramaturgy that seem to be shifting in a different direction. The theater which Lehman calls post-dramatic is not primarily focused on the drama, but involves a, perform a performative aesthetic in which the text of the performance is put in a special relationship to the material situation of the performance in the stage. The post-dramatic attempts to mimic the unassembled and unorganized literature that a playwright sketches. So that feels a little bit like convoluted. I'll try to walk through that a little bit, which is to say that I mentioned earlier that usually post-dramatic plays have a very direct relationship between audience and text and performer. Text is sort of just one element of that. The text is considered material. So probably a great way to think about this, and I, I go to the world of dance theater for this because I think the way dance theater has dealt with text sort of in the last, oh gosh, a long time. But certainly, you know, for, for a good part of the last 50 some years, um, as it's evolved, as modern dance has evolved, especially, and a kind of dance theater has emerged. So I know I mentioned uh, Pina Bausch, um, but you look at people who are working with, with words in dance, and one company that comes to mind very readily, and I met, think of them because you can also look their work up uh, on video, um, is a company called DB8. So D as in dog, B as in Victor, eight. DB8. So DB8 is a physical theater company, uh, dance theater company, um, that uses a lot of text. Uh, but they, the way they use text is not uh, like the way somebody directing a play would use text or, you know, a play play. <laughs> um, so I'll give you an example. There's a, there's a piece of theirs called John, uh, which is a very sad, sad play. Uh, that is, it deals with sadness and melancholy. Um, and, and somewhat controversial play when it came out. But um, there's a play called John that is about um, a, a young man who has grown up 
in a very, very extremely dysfunctional home, uh, violent, abusive, um, who then, you know, basically is, becomes an addict, um, is, you know, is, is maybe considered a lost soul uh, to some people's eyes. Uh, he goes to jail. Um, you know, he, has, he does petty crimes. He goes to jail. Uh, and then he sort of ends up in a, well, it becomes a play about identity, ultimately. Um, but what I will say about John is that it starts with a 20-minute monologue, which is a lot. Uh, so it's a 20-minute monologue where the figure, the performer that is enacting John, is speaking the monologue as if it were music. It's very metered. It's very cadenced. And doing extraordinarily specific and intense nonstop choreography alongside speaking the monologue. So the monologue becomes the music that he's dancing to. Uh, this, this kind of isolation technique, isolating the text from the motion, even though there are, to some degree, complementing each other visually, um, is one of, is, can be one of the hallmarks of post-dramatic theater. The text is on one track, the choreography is on another, and then the set may be doing something else, right? And they're speaking to one another, right? They're sort of in, in conversation. Um, and I would say John, to some degree, is very much a play. <laughs> um, but I remember seeing that production uh, of DB8 and thinking, wow, you know, that would never ha that would never happen in a play play. Like, right, you know, I couldn't imagine somebody directing an actor to do that. Right? Because the actor would be like, oh my God, you know, what do you mean? <laughs> um, so I think that, you know, I've I've often said writing and acting go together. How the histories of acting have evolved is in tandem with the way the history of writing for theater performance have evolved. They're in sync because writers are writing for performers and performers are looking for material to act and writers are like, oh, but I want to write material. You know, so it's it's sort of concentric circles. So in the 50s, when you have the method, um, basically a, a, an Americanized version of Stanislavski, um, in fact, in some ways, a misreading of Stanislavski in the 50s here in the United States. Um, and then you have the offshoots. You have the Strasbourg method and Adler, and then you have Meisner on the other side, and then you have Michael Chekhov, who's trying to restore uh, elements of Stanislavski that were misread. In his method, so you have these different methods. Right, writers that were writing plays during that time we're writing for those actors who were training in those methods. So, and the same thing is true today, right? So 
circling back to the post-traumatic, what I will say is that what Lehman is identifying as modes where the text is on one track, perhaps the visual is on another, choreography is on another, they're all in the same performance together, but there's a sense of that there are materials that are kind of dancing around each other <laughs> um, in performance um, is something that, that is coming from, I would say, the impact, I think, of dance theater, performance art, and live art upon the world of playwriting and more conventional theater. So you have playwrights who are hanging out in a live art scene, um, who are going to see dance theater, who are then like, oh, I want to write a play that sort of does that, right? So that's that's my theory. So, and I'm I'm kind of like also distilling a little bit of layman to say that it's coming from other art forms, and it's also coming from poetry and from literature where you start to see different kinds of way of treating the page and thinking about text and um, yeah, modes of music. So the rise of minimalist music starts to affect how people are thinking about how you can create sequences in writing that then become sequences that you perform, uh, the idea of looping, all that, all that sort of is put into the big basket that is called post-traumatic. And then I'll walk through this a little bit. Um, Post-traumatic theater it strives to produce an effect amongst the audience rather than remaining true to the text. So the idea of fidelity, and this is one of the reasons I mentioned things that are happening on different tracks in the post-traumatic, and I'm, and I'm saying that as kind of an extreme way because that's not true of all post-traumatic theater. When I, when I mentioned Jan Fasse, his work doesn't do that. Uh, so he's unique, even though he's one of the centers of post-traumatic theater. He's quite unique in that sense. Um, but this idea that one is, has fidelity to the text um, is liberated in the post-traumatic. So... This is also coming out of, and again, there's so many different strands to this. Um, this is also coming out of the Reggie theater tradition. So Reggie theater is the phrase used to describe director-driven theater from basically continental Europe. Uh, a lot of it in uh, Germany and the Netherlands where but not exclusively. It's also happening a lot in Russia um, in the 90s. You get, you get uh, a kind of directors who are authoring the production, basically, right? Um, very common, old school. It's now old school, right? So, But you get directors who are authoring the production and who are doing, let's say, you know, their version of Hamlet, and it's, I'm thinking specifically of Ostermeyer's production at the Schaubühne, so Ostermeyer does his version of Hamlet, just very, very famous. You know, one of the most important Hamlets in the last, you know, 15 years. Um, that production, 
on a dirt floor, uh, rain, uh, he deconstructs the play, uh, he explodes it. It's still the play. Um, he still does all the things. They still say all the text. <laughs> um, but the production prizes the play open, basically, uh, in an effort to find something else, right? In an effort to find, actually, I think, maybe a different kind of truth, a different kind of fidelity to the text, rather than one that is purely uh, mimetic. Uh, so I'm going to put that on the table as we talk about the post-dramatic. Lehman, going back to Lehman, locates what he calls the new theater, right? And this is how he describes it. The new theater that is part of a simultaneous, multi-perspective form of perceiving, which is brought about as a reaction to the dominance of the written text, right? So instead of privileging the text, the text is God, right? Um, Post-traumatic theater is like, no, let's think about the experience that the audience is having, and let's think about what are the other elements that are authoring the event. And the text is just one of them. The text is just, you know, is material. And so that's useful to think about. The text is not dominant. The text is just another element. So I'm going to continue with Lehman just to kind of break this down a little bit. This new theater that Lehman asserts is characterized by the use and combination of different styles. So things that may perhaps not seem to go together. Um, things that uh, I think now and maybe always, um, if you think about Charles Ludlam, if you think about other queer um, artists, where tones are shifting, where there are disruptions, where there's uh, pastiche, elements of pastiche. There's also elements of um, mixing up all the genres, um, and they're all coexisting. So that's not true of all post-traumatic plays. I'm just going to say that. But this is something that Lehman is identifying. So. A good example of this, and you can look up his work on video, is um, Falk Richter. Falk, I mentioned it before, he's a German dramatist and director, uh, usually stages his own work that he devises. Um, and in Falk's work, the there's a, a kind of the coexistence of very ra seemingly radical styles of performance, of staging, of sound, of light, uh, coexist on stage. So, you know, the audience is like, oh, you know, I'm in this experience with this show. And, and his work is very text heavy. Um, uh, he's a playwright. Uh, so I'm just going to walk through this a little bit more. Post-traumatic theater situates itself as after or beyond dialogue. It incorporates the notion of the performer, the performer as theme and protagonist, which is, I think, 
fairly radical idea. Um, the performer is the protagonist. Um, and the performer takes center stage. Um, and what I mean by that is not about celebrity. It's about that the performer's body, usually, body and voice, becomes the center of the event in, in, amongst, in amongst a larger multi-perspective staging event. Uh, I'll give you a short example about this. There's a tremendous production of The Idiot, Dostoevsky's, uh, based on Dostoevsky, in, uh, what country was it? Sweden. Um, the director, Matthias Anderson, who is a writer-director, um, he adapts the Dostoevsky text, and there's a, it's a beautiful adaptation, really, really stunning. He's an incredible director. Um, and Anderson, there's a scene in the Anderson play where there's a couple having a, a fight on stage, a uh, domestic dispute. You know, they're jealous of each other. They're angry. Um, and so they're at the, they're at the, they're on near the lip of the stage uh, having this tremendous fight. Big, you know, screaming at each other, you know, knock down, drag down, like big fight uh, between these two performers playing this couple uh, who are on the outs. They're dysfunctional. They're on the outs. Things are bad. They're screaming at each other, not going well. And in the middle of that scene, Anderson fills the stage. You see these kind of parade of children wearing headphones um, and wearing headphones and with phones in their hands or laptops. There's, I don't know, a hundred children, probably not that many, maybe 50. The 50 children sort of enter very slowly and kind of fill the stage, kind of surround it from all areas while this big fight is happening. And the, the kids are just sort of like, I mean, obviously they've been directed to do this. They're just kind of sitting, you know, absorbed in their phones or their laptops, totally chilling out, uh, leaning against the wall, uh, lounging, very, like, the nothing in their gesture vocabulary is intense or uh, anything like that. It's very uh, relaxed. Um, it's very interior. Um, and it's, so that, so that visual is juxtaposed against this fight that's happening on stage. And there's no attempt to explain why these children are on stage, who are they, what town did they come from. Like, they just appear, <laughs> and then that scene is over, and they walk off. Um, but the juxtaposition of that in very intense and very, I would say, very, like, very methody, very methody fight that's happening at the center on stage between that couple, those two characters that are fighting, is juxtaposed around a landscape of this very, like, we're not listening to you, we're just kind of watching our phones. And the fact that they're children and that the fight is between this, these two adults, that juxtaposition, you know, is a statement, right? 
Anderson as a director, authoring the scene, is making a statement with the actors' bodies, all the actors' bodies, the children that come on, the central actors that are having the fight, um, to say something about what? Apathy, about, you know, the audience decides, right? Visually, it's a stunning moment. Um, and it's done very elegantly. Um, but what I would say is I mention it because I think it's an example, a prime example of that the performer becomes the protagonist. The bodies on stage, the gestural vocabulary, the staging becomes the protagonist. Um, and, and that's where the focus becomes. Not the dialogue. I'll continue. In the most radical versions of the post-traumatic, uh, there's no plot. And again, it's focused on the interaction between performer and audience. Um, so, so I'm going to sort of mention some people that work in this realm. Okay, and I've mentioned some of them before, so I'll reiterate the ones I've I've mentioned before, and then I'll add some more to this list. So I mentioned um, Pina Bausch, obviously, for all all the reasons, all the reasons, Pina Bausch. Um, Robert Wilson, obviously, the Worcester Group, for sure. Uh, Builders Association, Tadeusz Cantor, famous, famous. If you can see any of Cantor's work, K-A-N-T-O-R, there's some of it on YouTube or on Canopy. Uh, incredible, incredibly, incredible uh, director, uh, no longer living. Um, but an astonishing and incredibly influential uh, early, this is early, uh, pre the Worcester Group, actually, um, coming up around the same time, up coming from a very different realm. Heiner Mueller, of course, Richard Foreman, of course, Robert Lepage, in a different way. I think Lepage is interesting because he does work with character. Um, and drama, <laughs> um, big art group here in New York, Jan Fabre uh, in Berlin, Jelinek in Vienna, but Jelinek's work is done a lot in Germany as well, but Jelinek is based in Vienna. Um, Alvis Hermanis in Riga, Force Entertainment, who's influenced, you know, like a gazillion people, Force Entertainment, who are based in Sheffield. Romeo Castellucci, uh, so it's, uh, the company name is Societas Raffaello Sanzio in Italy, Pampan in Ireland, Post, P-O-S-T in Australia, Action Hero in the United Kingdom, Nature Theatre of Oklahoma, U.S., Elevator Repair Service in the U.S. So there's a range. These are all post-traumatic. Okay. Worcester Group is a great example because I think you could just point to that work and know, right? You just see it and you go, oh, of course, they're doing post-traumatic work. Um, and they're doing it in a very specific way. This work influences playwrights and directors. So the new generation that's working in the post-dramatic realm, Suzanne Kennedy. So 
you should, if you don't know Suzanne Kennedy's work, you, I urge you to seek it out. Um, I'll spell her first name. It's S-U-S-A-N-N-E. Suzanne Kennedy is a director, stager, divisor who works with masks. So um, she's someone who's only interested, I wouldn't say only interested, let me paraphrase, let me step back from that statement for a second. But Suzanne Kennedy is interested in uh, artificial intelligence, virtual reality, um, uh, what I would call false, not false, but sort of plastic, synthetic, synthetic is a better word, synthetic atmospheres, synthetic environments on stage. Um, and actors, usually in her work, are performing where you don't see them. So they're you see their bodies, they're moving, but they're wearing uh, masks, masks that are that are like full full masks. Um, so with wigs and you know, um, they're they're kind of like um, like mannequins almost. The way she handles actors, um, the work is very conceptual. Uh, but has become very influential. So that's one of the reasons I say, you know, seek out Suzanne Kennedy. Simon Stone, who is very well known. I mean, he's a, he's a writer, adapter, director. He works with character. Um, he's known a lot for his visual, strong visual aesthetic. So he did a famous production of Yerma with Billy Piper. The set was like a, a glass box. Um, sort of a glass, but it wasn't made of glass, but that was the effect. Um, the actors were kind of in a Petri dish. The audience was looking at them. The actors couldn't see the audience. Um, the set kept, you know, changing perspective uh, throughout the production. Uh, he tends to adapt uh, classical work, but he's now working in film as well. So he just did a movie called The Dig. Uh, which is on Netflix. So Simon Stone belongs to this new generation of the post-dramatic. So if you look at the prior generation, which is Worcester Group, Force Entertainment, Action Hero, Nature of the Year of Oklahoma, Romeo, uh, Romeo Castellucci, Jelinek, Lepage, Pina Bausch, Builder Association. Suddenly you get this new generation, Suzanne Kennedy, Simon Stone, um, Ulrich Rosh, Nicolas Stemann, you know, there's a number of people that are sort of working in this realm. Um, so I'll sort of mention that. Um, and then I'll go forward. So the concept of post-dramatic is very popular in theater studies. Um, and it's a term that is, that has a lot of critics. So here's, you know, <laughs> Eleanor Fuchs. So this is gonna be like a point of contention. Um, the celebrated scholar Eleanor Fuchs, amazing scholar who wrote *Death of Character*, criticized Lehman. So, if this is this is a this was like a big scandal in, the, in theater circles, uh, because if anybody was going to embrace prose dramatic, it would have been uh, Eleanor Fuchs. And yet, uh, Eleanor Fuchs criticized Lehman, overly broad application of the term. Uh, the, when the book came out in the United States, it came out very late. So. Um, it was finally translated into English and it came out in, in like the uh, early aughts. 
So we got it a little bit later than everybody else. Um, and this is what uh, Fuchs said. With a single term, Lehman recreates three or more generations of theatrical outliers as a movement. Virtually every contemporary theater artist and group of international note is post-dramatic. Um, and Fuchs goes on to point out that attempts to kind of codify the, the, what post-dramatic is sort of uh, puts Lehman in hot water. Um, there's also a, something to be said that maybe Lehman didn't come up with the term post-dramatic. In fact, it was a term introduced before him by Andres Wirth uh, and also by Richard Schechner. Uh, performance group, uh, who of course was a long-standing scholar uh, at NYU. So it's a term that has its, you know, it's become a catch-all term, and I think that's one of the problems with it. Uh, the reason that that um, it's had some traction is because it feels like it can speak to work that doesn't fall into other categories that feel um, that feel identifiable, in other words. So uh, in that sense, uh, it's one of the reasons that the form sort of takes off. But uh, I'll, I'll come up here with, um, with a couple of other things for you. So there's a um, I'll give you some dates, first of all. So in 1999 is when post-dramatic theater was published in Germany. It was published in Britain two years. It was published in Britain in 2008. That publication in English by Karen Yurz Bumby then came to the United States. So Lehman writes it in 1999. It gets translated into English in 2008 or published in translation in English in 2008. So there's a big gap there, enough of a gap, you know, for things to kind of change in the field. Um, and then that book comes to the US. Um, and I'll sort of, I'm gonna quote here from Andrew Hayden. Andrew Hayden was a critic uh, who used to have an amazing blog called Postcards from the Gods. If you ever find that blog archived, I would say read it entire, read all of it, all all the years that he posted. He stopped posting. There was a scandal, um, sadly, um, and he he's basically stopped writing for theater, which is a real shame. But anyway, um, this is uh, Hayden talking about post dramatic theater, the book. It's the most vital book on theater I've read in years, and it's indispensable for anyone with an interest in the theatrical avant-garde or an understanding what is going on in mainland European theater. And this is European theater being uh, layman's focus. I would say that post-traumatic theater um, is very popular. I mean, it, it's kind of almost the primary mode in South America. Uh, in most work in South America that I see, lives as post-dramatic theater. Guillermo Calderón out of Chile, uh, Rafael Spregerberg 
out of Argentina, Lola Arias. I mean, there's so many artists that from the Americas and in, uh, in Mexico and Argentina and Brazil that are working in what could be called the post-dramatic realm. And in fact, the idea of doing a play, a play play feels, is almost like scoffed at. It's almost like, what are you talking about, right? Um, so the thing that I will say about this for a moment before I read you more of the Hayden is that um, post-dramatic as a term, contested, not contested, um, call it what you will, <laughs> uh, the debate around who, who coined the term, right? This happens in scholarly circles. Who coined the term? Um, what I will say about it is that it's pretty much the way people are doing theater. In most countries, uh, many countries, uh, uh, to some degree, um, for the last, you know, 40 years, 50 years. So what I think is unusual is that there are certain countries where the post-traumatic is considered niche and um, like on the margins or on the side. Um, and I would say one of those countries is here in the U.S., with some exceptions. Um, and I mean by some exceptions that there's some artists that have been able to kind of like not, to kind of jump from being on the margins and on the sides to not being on the margins and sides um, in terms of their modes of working and the way their work is received. Um, but in most countries, you know, and I'm thinking now of like, work is on the touring circuit from from Asia to Australia to the Americas to South America, Latin America, uh, to Canada, uh, Russia. The mode, in fact, the dominant mode is post-traumatic. And in fact, writing a play play is kind of like an anomaly. It's kind of like a, like a, you know, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing writing a play play? Um, so, so, and I think that there's been moves back and forth throughout this period. So I think the, the first height of the post-traumatic uh, was in 19, around 1997. If you're looking at Britain, it's in 1997 when Martin Cripp uh, writes, um, uh, well, he didn't write it then, but he staged, it was staged then. He wrote it the year before. Attempts on Her Life, which was uh, Attempts on Her Life, which was uh, the play that kind of broke open. Right, He was doing what actually Jelinek and other writers were doing already. But he was the first writer in Britain to kind of like go, boom, there's this thing. And I don't think he was calling it post-dramatic. But it's interesting that Lehman publishes Post-Dramatic Theater in 1999. Tense on Life is first produced in 1997. And so there's a kind of, co there's a, things that coalesce around a play that kind of shoots, it's like a rocket, that play. It shoots into the stratosphere. Um, you know, there are no characters. It's, uh, it's, it's pure text. It's unassigned dialogue. It's governed by a theme. Whose story are we following? We may be following Anna's story of, you know, ostensibly, but are we? 
Is it a series of scenarios? Whose scenarios are they? The audience is asked to piece it together. Um, there's hardly any stage direction. I mean, it's it's set as a couple, you know, it's set up as a series of scenarios to be staged in order, but to be staged um, with very little prescription around it. So what I will say is that that play, Attempts on Our Life, became kind of a lightning rod for a ton of other writers. One of them being Sarah Kane. So you would not have, I don't think you would have a play like 48 Psychosis or Crave if Attempts on Her Life had not been written and staged. These things kind of coalesce, right? There's a kind of this lightning rod moment where, you know, as you know, as a colleague of mine in Britain who say, there's like everything that was written prior to Attempts in Her Life, and then there's everything that's written after Attempts in Her Life. That's how important that play was, right, to the field. It was like, well, Martin Crimp has done that. What are we going to do, right? And so it, what you see actually in sort of this movement, shall we call it the post-dramatic movement, is that there's a wrestling with, contending with, oh, the field has shifted. What are we going to do? How are we going to make plays? And for people that are playwrights and people that work in more conventional, it's all a convention, but <laughs> more ostensibly overtly conventional modes, probably more hierarchical modes, to tell you the truth, uh, ways of working, there was a kind of like, you know, it felt like the floor got knocked out from under them. And they were trying to figure out what to do. Um, and that's still, to some extent, that's still the case. Uh, uh, to some, Like I said, to some extent, I would say probably still in transatlantic theater work. Um, I think someone that's very interesting to look at in terms of the post-traumatic, I know this lecture is long, but... It's important. It covers a lot. So one of the things to look at in post-traumatic in terms of the commercial field is to look at the career of Rachel Chafkin. Because Rachel Chafkin's work with the team falls very much into the world of the post-traumatic. Then she takes that sensibility and that aesthetic. And because she's a director, that aesthetic impacts the staging of Town, impacts the way Great Comet looked and felt, right? So this is not uncommon, right? So work that's happening in one area of the field suddenly is like transformed often in the commercial realm. Not co-opted necessarily, because what's interesting about Rachel Chapkin is that she herself is doing it. It's not like somebody's going, oh, I saw Rachel do that with the team and mission drift and I'm going to do it. No, she's kind of like doing, you know, sort of working on her own uh, aesthetic, but kind of like taking it out of um, quote fringe, which is a word I hate. Um, so, so what I will say is that there's a kind of, but there's a shift, there's shifts in the field. And, um, 
you see people sort of grappling with how to contend with uh, work. In Kane's case, what I will say is that uh, one of the astonishing things about her career, just to kind of look at her career for a second, Sarah Kane, is that you look at her, the body of her place, which is unfortunately very short, and you can almost see the history of theater in that body of place. From Blasted to 448 is pretty much the history of theater. I mean, in Blasted, she is quite consciously doing the Greeks, Shakespeare. I mean, she is, I mean, if you read her notebooks, um, she was very deliberate that she was doing a kind of riff on the greatest hits, right? It's sort of a greatest hits play. <laughs> and then it's her take on it, right? It's her kind of her mode. Um, but she's doing, you know, she's doing Pinter, she's doing Beckett, she's doing, right? Like you sort of see, you sort of see from play to play to play kind of like a history of theater. So one of the reasons that I'm, that I think it's useful to think about Kane's work is because there's a clarity and a consciousness to the fact that she's doing that. She knew she was doing that. She was pretty direct and uh, clear with herself as a writer. But that's something that she was doing. That with each play, she was gonna, she was gonna make something that felt like it hadn't been made before, but that also was in a specific theatrical mode. And when you get to 448, you know, when, when you get to Crave, sorry, I will say with Crave, there's the beginning of, if you read her notebooks, um, of saying, look, you know, actually, I've been working in a certain way, and now I think people can't see what I'm doing, right? Because of the way her work was received. Um, she felt like, how do I distill my voice so that what I'm trying to communicate is coming across? And so you get a play like Crave. And then the next extension of that is 448. Um, but really, reading her, reading that body of work is like looking at the history of theater. Um, I'll just circle back here now to the Andrew Hayden review of the English translation of the post-dramatic theater book. Uh, it doesn't seek to be a manifesto for how theater ought to be, but simply describes an observable movement in the form, the form of theater. The book is primarily a detailed guide to the artists operating within the boundaries of the term post-dramatic. It provides an invaluable philosophical framework for understanding where the work is situated within wider intellectual thinking. And yet, the term appears to almost have no currency outside academic institutions. Beyond academia, if the term is acknowledged at all, it seems to be treated with a sort of skepticism reserved for, quote, continental thinking. This is a great pity. As, um, and he's speaking specifically to Britain because that's where he lives and he wrote this article. Britain already suffers from a dearth of new ways uh, sorry, a dearth of ways to describe and discuss new forms. So when such a convenient term turns up, like post-traumatic, it seems idiotic to dismiss it. What is post-traumatic theater? 
Layman sets out his definitions with great care, moving from Aristotle's poetics to Hegel's dialectics. He makes a crucial distinction between drama and theater. In Britain, where theater and drama are often used as synonyms, it could well be useful to reintroduce this distinction. Drama, Layman argues, is characterized by narrative, by dialectics. Post-traumatic theater, in contrast, occurs, quote, when the progression of a story with its internal logic no longer forms the center, when composition is no longer experienced as an organizing quality, but as an artificially imposed manufacture. As well as setting out the apparatus for a theatrical understanding and appreciation of the genre, Lehman also discusses the practitioners whose work falls within it. Examples include Beckett, Mueller, Robert Wilson, Lepage, Pina Bausch, Worcester Group, DB8, Forts Entertainment, Complicite, Goat Island, Gob Squad, and so forth. While certain passages of the book get into fiercely complex academic arguments, in the main, the book remains hugely readable and accessible. What's more, despite not being a manifesto preaching for a superiority, superiority of a particular type of theater, it is hugely inspiring. The sheer extent of the possibilities described and imagined make for an exhilarating read. Whole currents at play, site-specific work, nonlinear, fragmentary, multimedia, and puppet theater all discussed, and you suddenly get a sense that this is not just work happening on the margins of, quote, proper theater, but that such work is part of a rich tradition all of its own on a separate trajectory from drama. As such, post-dramatic theater is not only an important work of theory and theater history, it is also a vital inspirational cornerstone for the avant-garde. I think that what Hayden describes as the difference between drama and theater is a very useful way to think about this. There's theater, which is the totality of the experience, and there's drama, which is focused on dialectics. And it is what, you know, I think I tend to call and some of my friends call a play-play, right? Drama is a play-play, and theater is everything else. Um, so that's one very easy, you know, kind of like knee-jerk rubric to think about this. Very wide term to describe the specific work of any number of companies and artists and practitioners that are working kind of in a post, in a sense of post, post-drama, post-dialectical, but into another realm. Often, work that is very, I would say, to round out today's lecture, which is very long, to say horizontal work. It's work that's horizontal in the main, that is kind of looking at things in space horizontally, uh, and is not striving necessarily always for an organizing principle, although there is one to a degree. Uh, but from a viewer's perspective, often there doesn't seem to be one. Actually, the organizing principle of a lot, 90%, and this is a blanket statement, but 90% of, of post-dramatic theater, the organizing principle is usually thematic. It starts with theme, and the theme becomes the umbrella 
for a larger uh, exploration, investigation, discussion, etc. The modes in which that happens, site-specific, site-responsive, immersive, puppets, you know, is up to the practitioners. But the the way of going in there, where the where I said earlier, the bodies, the bodies on stage, the mise en scène, are what rule, and the and everything else is material inside of it. So this is one way to think about it. It's a it's a huge topic. Go read the book if you want to. Um, but to say that that it covers, you know, there's so much around this. Um, and I think, but it's useful to think about because it is, as a colleague of mine, uh, Alan Reed talks about, there's often a dismissal around the fact that there are traditions uh, in our field and that the post-traumatic tradition, uh, as Reed posits, is that the post-traumatic tradition comes from a carnival, Ritual and mask. Mask as in M-A-S-Q-U-E. But the court masks, the rituals and festivals and carnival, that all that tradition is actually what leads you to the post-traumatic. Where it's festival, where it's like performer and audience, where there's a direct relationship, where the mise-en-scene is really important, um, where ritual is often central. central. Um, where there's a theme <laughs> that governs everything, but not necessarily, oh, there's a character and then we meet them and then we follow the story and then not necessarily. Sometimes it's there and sometimes it isn't. Um, and I think that that's uh, a tradition that's, that's certainly for a lot of people that are doing uh, devised work what is called devised work, which, you know, I think all work is devised, but, um, you know, we all devise things in a rehearsal room. But, um, but you know, what has become called devised work, which is, you know, we get together and we make stuff together, uh, work like that uh, in a room usually co-created, the idea of co-creation uh, changes, changes the notion of how we look at a play, what a play means, um, what is a play, <laughs> why a play, um, and how we experience it as theater. I think one of the interesting things about Crave, to circle back around to Crave, is that it is a play. It's absolutely a literary event. But what does it, what does it demand from the, from the collaborators? It is a provocation. Um, and how does this provocation enact a kind of post-traumatic situation? Because the text is has moments of drama, but it's decentered, right? It's decentered drama, uh, and it's split open, right? So you have these four voices, and they're interacting, and we're trying to figure out. And sometimes we're in somebody's head, and sometimes we're maybe not, and sometimes we're maybe in a scene, but maybe we're not in a scene. You know, like. And it's, it's a play that's developed along four tracks. Like musically, it's four tracks. And we are kind of listening to all four tracks interacting with each other. So, so the provocation of that play is how do you stage it? Um, and, you know, we can sort of look at that and think about that. 
So I'll leave you there. Go read our attempts in our life. Go see a bunch of things. Go see a lot of deviate uh, on video. Uh, yes, but I'll have to say, post-traumatic is very much a thing. And it's also probably what I wonder is like where, what the next movement is going to be of theater. Because I think that now the post-traumatic is kind of like such a big um, umbrella. And it feels like something else may be happening in the field that comes, that's sort of in the post-post, the post-post dramatic. Um, and so we're in an interesting time. And I think it's happening online. I think, I think that new form is happening online and that new movement is happening online uh, in transmedia work. Uh, so, so who knows? Maybe there'll be a scholar that will define what that is. And we'll all call it that someday. Thanks for listening.